Welcome everyone to the City's First Podcast. I am the founder and host of the City's First Podcast, uh, Scott Shepard. I'm really excited to have with you today for our, I believe it's our 15th episode now. So we've been doing this for a little over a year. Uh, we're here in uh, late November recording. Um, and today I have Andrea Learned from uh, Seattle, Washington, who's joining us. Uh, have a really interesting conversation talking about a lot of themes here related to urbanism, feminism, COP28, as well as the kind of this transformation of the uh, post-COVID landscape. So we've got a lot of stuff to talk about uh, with our audience here today. So Andrea, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah, that's great. So I think we're going to have a really healthy exchange um, and a lot of really uh, topical uh, things to cover here. So just uh, get everyone going here. I think everyone knows the theme, but uh, just kind of go through the bio, go through a series of questions, kind of in a roundtable format. It's very conversational. And then we'll just kind of wrap it up with some uh, thoughts towards, uh, you know, the landscape in the future. And uh, We'll kind of uh, continue on. So um, just a little bit about Andrea. So Andrea Learned is the founder of Learned On LLC. She is a sustainability-focused writer and communication strategist specializing in digital thought leadership. Her early career success in marketing to women, culminating with the publishing of her book, Don't Think Pink, gives her current sustainability and leadership work an underlying gender lens as well. After a year serving as a We Mean Business Coalition social engagement strategist around COP21, Andrea has returned to her independent consultancy and is back to leveraging her networks and guiding clients to leadership platforms for a carbon footprint countering positive collective impact. I hope I read that right. <laughs> Did I get that right? <laughs> so anyway, welcome, Andrea. This is a real pleasure and you have your kind of fingers in many different adventures and uh, like, uh, you know, programs, uh, you know, in Seattle and globally. So it's really in inspirational to kind of hear about your your take on leadership. Um, so again, we're really happy to have you. And I think we're just going to roll up our sleeves and get started uh, just for the sake of time here. So our first uh, question for you, and, you know, our audience really knows our format very well, is around City strategies. So what are the key strategies that cities can put in place to encourage active transportation? Well, I'm a firm believer as a bike riding for transportation person myself, <laughs> that really starting to make those shifts and seeing bike lanes and things like that, and also talking about putting in more bus routes and all of kind of the typical general things. If you are doing that, my bent is always going to be that you're communicating that very well. You're storytelling around how those are opportunities and potential and those are ways that people can shift. So I'm always looking at do the thing, but make sure you're communicating it really well. And I'm always going to be talking about how the influence of seeing leaders take the bus, ride a bike, take an e-scooter, et cetera, is going to be really important for constituents and citizens to start to see that in action and then trust it actually happening. Sorry, I muted myself a little, uh, little glitch when we do the live recordings. Um, but uh, to kind of further that point, lead by example. So just to layer in what you're saying. And not only that, um, really reinforce uh, through messaging and storytelling so that we don't revert back to the status quo. So let's say, for example, I'm not going to name this name the cities here, but let's say the cities from an active transportation standpoint that uh, introduced open streets program circa 2020 in the lockdowns, 
And they reverted back to the car-centric status quo in 2021-2022. So a couple cities on the West Coast, I want to point fingers here, but I think we know who we're talking about. A couple in my home state of California, we'll just leave it at that. And it's really um, telling to see where we're at. But then again, a couple cities are now just recently, I read yesterday that Austin, Texas is reintroducing its open streets program and encouraging kind of a pilot initiative. So there's a lot of vacillation going on right now. It's really interesting where the storytelling is failing and kind of leading by example is failing and what you're saying needs to be put into practice better. Yeah. And I, I am not sure exactly what Seattle's been doing, but I do during COVID, I remember when the healthy streets went in, particularly one near where I live. And it was so incredible to see so many different people biking, riding, walking, et cetera, on those. And it was just so obvious, right? That it was an amazing success. And then to your point, I did sense that the city was waffling on, are we going to make it permanent? Are we, you know, and I just was, I'm like, are you kidding? I was just bashing my head over it. I was like, what are you? And then we've in Seattle, we also have done this thing where, I mean, I think it was like once a a month, it was rarely or occasionally we would close off this big, beautiful Lake Washington Boulevard so that people could ride and walk down in an open street that was incredible. I think they opened up a little bit more during COVID. And then they were just like, okay, all done. And when I'm riding a bike on that street and it isn't closed, it is just, it's a complete horror. So the thing that's interesting is how data or even storytelling, if you went and stood on one of those streets during COVID and watched it, and you were a decision maker in this, how on earth could you not go, I don't know if the data isn't rolling enough or what they're looking at so that they're deciding not to do it or make it permanent, but you look at the faces and watch people on there yourself. There's no denying. So it's this like experiencing it yourself and then the storytelling around it I remember, I'll give you an example. I was um, getting some lab work done and the the nurse that was drawing the blood, I was talking to her about biking and she's like, oh, I'm so whatever. And I said, excuse me, I said, during COVID, they've opened up these healthy streets. You might, she's like, what? She had no idea they'd done it. She'd never heard of it. She And she was like, oh, I would definitely ride a bike or go for a walk on those. So I don't think they even messaged it well during COVID. It takes a little bit of time. And that's why I'm always going to point to the storytelling and seeing the leaders themselves actually do it. And they need to talk about it on social media. They need to be like, hey, walked down the healthy street today. It was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Get get that cross platform, that cross marketing, that message across word of mouth, but as many channels as possible. Uh, just a final thought. I move on to the next question is uh, the, the resounding success of this experiment in Los Angeles and Pasadena just two or three weeks ago on the Royal Seco Parkway, formerly known as the Pasadena Freeway, where they closed down the entire freeway. It's historically the first freeway ever built in Los Angeles in circa 1940. And uh, it, it's really the symbol of you know, the auto culture in LA, and it was closed down just for pedestrians and cyclists. And it was something no Angelino such as myself has ever seen in our life. And everyone was happy and they loved it. And it was like, I mean, it was like a party. I will say- You saw that, right? You saw that? Yes, I saw it. And I will say in the back of my mind, I'm a person who just envisions LA as so car-centric that I don't even- most Americans do. And then I don't like to visit it because I have a lot of friends there and a lot of stuff that I've been doing down there. But I'm just like, when I saw that, I was like, dang, if I would have known, I would have like flown down just Mm -hmm. to like, I mean, that's silly from a climate perspective, but the joy on people's faces and seeing those stories and watching my friends on social media say, oh my gosh, this was incredible. That's something I would want to be a part of. That was amazing. 
Of course, of course. But I'm a huge booster in my own hometown of LA anyway. So I think there's a lot more to discover than people know. So yeah, no, 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 I'm with you. I've only recently kind of gotten to know more people and been to LA a little bit more frequently. And I love, I'm seeing the pieces that I love, but I hate how much I have to get in a car to get from one place to the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay. Next uh, question is uh, a little bit more in your neck of the woods here. So how has Seattle, or let's say the Puget Sound region, um, positioned itself as a leader in shared mobility and tactical urbanism? Well, I mean, I think they've done similar things to a lot of other cities during COVID, which is they have talked about healthy streets. They have been, you know, adding to bike lanes. They have um, they took the, I think they're pushing the bus routes back up, things like that. So they're, but I, but I, I'm somebody who thinks that they're, they're backpedaling a little bit or kind of going a little slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's interesting because during COVID e-bikes, as we all know, got so much publicity and ever, all of a sudden people were realizing they could use them. I myself am seeing a lot of anecdotal my neighbors, all sorts of people who would never have considered riding a bike for a commute downtown um, are doing it. And so again, sort of the storytelling and the personal experience and having a wide open space and maybe fewer cars on the road, you know, and that opportunity during COVID to try it and see what an amazing kind of transportation option that was. A lot of people have sort of kept on it. Um, I I'm not sure to the degree that the city of Seattle, you know, what they're doing and their messaging around that. Again, I'm going to always go to communications, but um, I've seen the citizens of Seattle uptake whenever. I'll give you an example. We have been pushing and pushing for years for a certain route that goes under the Ballard Bridge and there's train tracks underneath it. We have been pushing for years. It is people wipe out there all the time. It's horrible. Years and years and years and years. And only recently something happened and they were all like, oh, we'll get on it. They fixed it overnight. Yeah. <laughs> and now no, there's and now there's this route. And people are like, that one thing kept people from using that bike route. Yeah. Years. And so this is like it's like tactical being, oh, I guess we can overnight figure that out. They mm-hmm. did it. They got great news coverage. They got people immediately. I immediately wrote down there just just to give it a try. That's the kind of thing. Listen, really think about how much time and how much energy and money it would take to fix that little thing. You do it and people will just be, and then our trust in what the city is going to do and how they'll respond in the future is that much higher. Do you think with the kind of the reconfiguration of the waterfronts and the elimination of the viaduct, that has open up more opportunities for citizen engagements and kind of community involvement in terms of bringing the waterfront to the people and downtown and all that stuff? Or is that kind of not the opportunity materialized yet? They did it. They did not do it well. They did not really think about that. They've put in too many car lanes as it is. They it continue to be really car centric. Pretty wide, right? Yeah, it's very wide. Cross, so yeah. They did not. They did not do a good job of really understanding that before they did it, and mm-hmm. they get a lot of um, guff on social media and from the urbanists here in Seattle. And and I will say, I avoid it like the plague. Still, even though they took that double decker. Yeah, as they were doing that double decker thing, <laughs> we were all like, oh, right, like we could just see the waterfront was it's incredible. there, yeah, right. We had this vision, and then they did it, and it's just like I have been riding a bike for thirty years for transportation, and I 
avoid i'll, I'll go there because if it's I still have. a wide arterial it's still very it's wide, wide arterial. there's a bike path kind of thing aligned with it but you're also just right next to cars going and yeah. you're sort of having to intermingle with tourists and whatever it's just i would not it's not good and i don't think that they yeah it's really a bummer yeah, well, you know, Seattle has the bones, though. Uh, it has a topography, which is a challenge like San Francisco, but it has the grid or it has multiple overlapping grids from an urbanist perspective and very kind of small blocks that you can cross and from an urban street network, kind of like downtown Portland. So it has all the bones to, you know, promote walkability and promote active transportation and tactical urbanism. But let's hope over time <laughs> things evolve, but you know, it, it's, it's, we're not there yet. It sounds like. No, we aren't. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's, let's see how it goes. <laughs> okay. All right. So the next topic is a little bit uh, more, uh, maybe a little more near, near, near to your heart is around um, how can communities create safe and empowering public spaces for women? Well, I'm again, going to go to that. The decision makers themselves walk around those areas with their grandmother with their mom, with their aunt, the the seeing that experience through the eyes of the people that they supposedly are designing them around is is the most important thing. And that's really even from the book, Don't Think Pink, that now published almost 20 years ago, the whole idea was it's really easy to just get more women involved in the process, ask them, walk through those areas at night, walk through those areas, you know, to ride a bus into that area, see how you get off, et cetera. I, it, it, I feel like this is nothing new. This is nothing that anybody hasn't heard before, but I'm kind of hammering it because it makes all the difference in the world if it's not a bunch of, well, I mean, it's often in the US, a bunch of white guys who have been doing this for years who just kind of go, this is the routine. And, and engineers too. They're white male civil engineers. To yeah, get yeah. And nothing against Licensed white engineers. Right. But the thing is, is I do think there's something to literally walking your mom or your grandma through that space or taking a bus and landing in that spot and then walking to a restaurant with your grandma and just asking her, like, would you ever do this at eight o'clock at night? No way. Would I, you know, all that kind of thing. And it, it's kind of storytelling or like including that lens in your life and in your planning process. I know that these things, there's a lot of community engagement and these big structured things where people are supposed to come and make comments. We know that it's very hard to get people to come and make comments or to go online and make comments. So I think the planners and the engineers, the people that are involved in this have to really just to themselves go, I'm going to take my wife, I'm going to take my daughter, I'm going to take my grandma through here, and we're going to check this out. I think that's a really easy clue. Well, I think uh, the engineering profession and the planning profession in many uh, realms has failed us in terms of really uh, providing uh, public spaces that are safe and accessible to all, of course, in, including women. Um, and this, I, my take as a white male, as an American, but speaking about this, uh, is that, um, you know, th these professions are highly segmented, they're highly siloed, they're highly specialized. And to use uh, the term, it's very Byzantine in terms of the public sector and government. So it's very uh, opaque, almost by design and meant to be inaccessible. And it's meant to be not necessarily as straightforward, as logical as you think, because a lot of it is boosting the you know, pro professional credibility of experts, quote unquote, of which right. I would supposedly consider myself an expert as an urban planner. But again, taking that hat off and thinking of myself as a human being, 
well, you know what, are we really overcomplicating the process where mobility is really, uh, you know, this common thread for all in cities and public spaces, men and women, children, elderly, et cetera. So, I mean, have we over-specialized these fields, let's say for the last century since professional highway building and state DOTs were founded? And, you know, this, like I said, this professional fraternity of uh, white male civil engineers, like we're talking about. I mean, it really comes down to this over-specialization, especially in North America and the United States, more so than here in Europe. Here in Europe, it's a bit more interdisciplinary. The lines uh, bleed over between architects, engineers, surveyors, et cetera, across nations in Europe. But in the U.S., it's still very hyper-specialized. And if you look at state and local DOTs, that's just the name of the game. Well, I have a question that's sort of, for you, related to that, that I see kind of as a, a symbol of the whole problem. And that is that whole idea of desire lines, even for walking, you know, cross. Ah, yes. You're like in a snow when people walk across the snow and you see. Like on a college, <laughs> like a college campus that's, mm -hmm. you know, the quad, what happens. Yeah. I, I'm not a person who follows this closely, but I, in my neighborhood, there's kind of a, a wide open street that everyone crossed kind of diagonally and they did these things. Well, the city came in and spent a lot of money to create the sidewalks and the openings that were like perpendicular, you know, were, were yeah, squared as off. As geometrical as possible. So, you know, what, so you make these and, right and they angles. Want you, and they stuff. want you to walk a little bit further and cross the road. Yeah. You know what happened? It's a big pile of mud on the diagonal because we're still all walking that. They, They're still crossing over it, even if they put a oh little. My God. And so I don't, this is sort of a symptom of the whole thing. And yeah. so it's like, you. this is what we do. Okay, we're going to do this. This is how we nudge everyone to walk this way. You know what? People aren't going to walk that way. Would you walk that way if you lived here? No, you wouldn't. And so it's just fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's much to unpack here. I'm sure we'll, we'll cover this maybe in a follow-up episode. But uh, in terms of just uh, making cities more accessible to all and certainly for women, uh, breaking down the barriers of accessibility of, uh, you know, outreach communications, um, kind of lowering the bar of entry for specialization and uh, kind of more simplifying what's logical and makes sense, I think, is is a real kind of key takeaway, at least my perspective. Yes, but I think that's a great takeaway. Simplify. Speak, speak for women, but this is my perspective, but you can tell us what you think. But uh, I think the over-specialization is just it, it's problem number one. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think it's like any profession right now, you get too far away from actual the experience of the thing and you're up in some ivory tower and you're the smartest. Yeah, and you want to protect your own job too. It's about your pension. It's about your own professional credibility, your status. It's a bunch of stuff. Yeah, yeah. A bunch so of I not good stuff. Cultural shift back oh, to yeah. reality would be Why good. are we here, you know, trying to plan and design and make cities better? Is it just about our own CV and resume and our status? Or is it about, are we here to help out as public servants in the public good? You know, that begs the question. Yep. Um, so now let's kind of wrap up with our final topic here and hopefully we'll have a little bit more time on this one. And this is all about you, Andrea. So oh, <laughs> let's, let's, let's uh, hear it from you about, let's tell us about your advisory, um, your book from 20 years ago, uh, Don't Think Pink. And what are you up to nowadays? Yeah, so I'll start with the book. So 20 years ago, 2004, um, Don't Think Pink is a book about marketing to women, how women make decisions. Um, and I was the co-author of that book, and it was all about women as the most discriminating consumer. So if you figure out how to appeal to women, and I think this applies to what we've been talking about today, if you figure out how to appeal more to women, that's the highest bar. 
and everyone else will come along. So it started there. And with that through line, what I realized is I'm not really that interested in helping sell more consumer goods to women, but I was very interested in what I learned in the process of that book, which is how women make decisions, which led me to how they make decisions as business people, as leaders, which led me to more recently um, kind of, there's a through line into, I somehow or other got into climate and sustainability. I think it was through green consumerism, women as green consumers. I got into sustainability and then I realized that sustainability leadership, more the B2B realm was of interest to me. And at the time I was living in Burlington, Vermont, and there were a lot of companies that are, you know, have a lot of social impact in their roots there and realized that that's the direction I had to go to. Anyway, I ended up getting a master's degree in sustainable business and communications. And that led me to really looking more at climate. And so the whole time I was working for myself, the marketing to women, I did a whole many years of consulting and speaking on that. And then I started writing for Huffington Post about sustainability, green consumerism. And then that led me to working with more companies in the corporate sustainability space and NGOs and nonprofits. And that's how I ended up working in during COP21, which was 2015, um, with an organization called We Mean Business, really got me to see kind of the possibilities for social engagement globally, the power of what was then Twitter in elevating leadership and leading thinking and being seen leading, that's something that I developed during COP21, which has then become sort of the linchpin or the key tool that I used, have used ever since in terms of helping my clients. So my advisory, helping my clients build name, be seen leading towards uh, not just the glamour of it, but towards being seen in history as taking a bolder step which will back me up to. And so uh, the reason that you and I met is because I have a podcast called Living Change, A Quest for Climate Leadership. And so is that how we met, Scott? Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure. So I was fascinated during COP21 with C40 cities and all of the organizations that were touting cities. We're talking about cities for climate. I was watching that very closely and realized that my whole thing of riding a bike for transportation for years wasn't really being talked about. So I started a hashtag then, bikes number four climate, bikes for climate. And then I just kept watching cities. So I've been watching cities ever since then and watching also who I realized were leading, watching mayors like Anne Hidalgo in Paris really take bold leadership with regard to biking and bike lanes and being seen biking herself. All of this kind of ultimately, and I stayed in the corporate sustainability and the climate space, all of this led to, I had the opportunity to, to do the Living Change podcast, A Quest for Climate Leadership. And the people I really was interested in interviewing were local lawmakers, mayors, city council people who themselves rode a bike for transportation, were seen riding a bike for transportation, i.e. they shared on their, excuse me, on their social media, oh, I just got in on my bike for my meeting. Here's me, you know, like little hints that they themselves ride a bike for transportation and how that translates into them being trusted as a leader, their constituents realizing that they actually have ridden a bus taking a bike in their city so they can trust the policies and the bike bus lanes and all the stuff that are coming in. 
my most fun interviews during the first season of Living Change were with Mark Gamba, a former mayor of Milwaukee, which is a town outside of Portland, who is now in the Oregon House. He himself rides a bike for transportation. He's a former National Geographic photographer, so he's got a view on climate. Um, John Bowders, who anyone who's on Twitter knows, the mayor of Emeryville, who himself is very loud about biking and social justice and all of that. He's amazing. Alex Fish out of Culver City. So it was talking with these mayors. And again, it wasn't all men. I also talked with Barbara Buffalo, who's the mayor of Columbia, Missouri, about how she herself and she and her husband wanted to live in a town where they could bike for transportation. And thus now she's in city leadership. She's the mayor. She's seen biking. It's very important to her. And then another woman, Robin Douglas, who is in the Maryland State Assembly, who is doing major incredible work and the community kind of impact level and social justice, running around making sure that she's seen biking herself and that it's very visible that she's taking transit and just building wonderful community engagement around it and making huge change. So I'm looking for what's happened with my career. The through line is just leadership in terms of raising the bar and changing things in a really good way for people and that these people get seen for it. I want to use my platform to make sure that leaders who are walking the talk are seen doing it and that that becomes the new social norm for leadership. I'm sick of the social norm for leadership being, oh, they just pulled up in their gigantic black SUV for a climate talk, you know, blah, blah, blah. I want the storytelling to be there are a lot more people and the most relevant leaders are the ones who are in their home cities, riding a bike for transportation, being seen walking, being seen on a bus, things like that. I think Michelle, uh, what's Michelle, you in um, Michelle, you, the mayor of Boston. Michelle Wu, yeah. Michelle Wu, she's a wonderful example. I mean, I remember during her campaign, you would see her with her e-cargo bike and she would talk about taking the train, et cetera. These are, in Anne Hidalgo in Paris, these are the kinds of leadership that we need that are hugely um, kind of climate influence. And that's uh, that's my whole thing is the climate influence of a city leader choosing to do this, building trust in that way, and then being able to forward more quickly less car communities. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I think we do have one more time here. Um, it is interesting because, you know, from a city leadership pers perspective, there's a certain uh, profile of climate leaders, uh, emerging leaders. You mentioned city of Emeryville, which is a very, very, very small city in the San Francisco Bay Area. A lot of people don't even know about it, but it's right near Oakland, California. But the mayor is much more well known than the, the city itself. Um, yeah, and these leaders are very kind of indicative of these small to mid-sized cities that are uh, becoming kind of these climate cycle friendly, um, you know, use cases. Uh, let's segment out. So let's talk about the U.S. first. So in the U.S., we mentioned a few cities that are kind of a smaller medium profile. Um, uh, some of them are college towns. Some of them are uh, smaller, let's say, inner-ring suburbs, which is what em Emeryville would be, kind of a historic inner-ring suburb and others. Um, but then you mentioned Boston, which is completely, you know, uh, it was one much, much larger city of six, 700,000 people. So um, it would be really interesting to see how we can kind of push the needle for more Boston sized cities to kind of get on this bandwagon and move forward as, as we kind of see uh, this, uh, let's say um, uh, evolution. So, 
maybe more Cincinnati's, more St. Louis's, uh, you know, more Kansas City's, places like that, mid-size American cities where those mayors are really on a bike or on a scooter or whatever, and, uh, you know, walk uh, walking the talk, that kind of thing. Yeah. I would love to see that too. Well, let's go into COP28. So heading into COP28, I'm going to really be watching the city's hashtag in that conversation for listeners. Uh, WRI Ross Cities has a good Twitter account. And I'm following these organizations because, I mean, and it's good for me to be uh, talking with you because the difference of leaders being seen taking transit or riding a bike in Europe versus the US and how they are examples and they're leading by example. And I, the thing that I'm always saying is, listen, all the people that are uh, able to take trips to Europe, they ooh and ah about how amazing it was to be in Paris or to be in Copenhagen or to be wherever. And then they come back and get right in their SUV and think that that's normal life. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a problem. We'll come back. I still, we have a little more time. So we'll come back to the Europe versus U S in a second here. Cause we're kind of on a, we're on a good thread here. Um, but uh, back to the U S cities though. Yeah. I think, if we could have maybe few, fewer Madison, Wisconsin's, fewer Burlington, Vermont's, fewer uh, Boulder, Colorado's, and more Kansas City's, more St. Louis's, more Baltimore's with those mayors out cycling, I think that would have much more of a meaningful impact in my personal view of having mid-size American city leaders really uh, you know, push uh, leadership forward in terms of modal shift, because we expect college towns to do this. They've been doing this for 30, 40 years. I lived in Burlington too. I went to UVM. So I know the whole thing. We lived in the same city. It's great, but you expect it there or like a Davis, California. But these mid-sized American cities, especially in the Rust Belt, Cleveland, places like that, I think that's a really great opportunity. I would love to see that. Um, well, I completely and utterly agree. And that's really one of the things that I, I mean, I'm very willing to advise them on how to communicate that and do that better because I am with you. Like yeah. we can find college towns out the kazoo, but yeah, we expect them to do it. They're already doing it. But there's huge opportunity. And that's my whole point is climate influence. So if exactly. yes, we got the Kansas City mayor or we got the whatever, name these cities. If we got those mayors to do this and to be seen doing it, it would make a huge difference for climate. It would open up the- for America, whole... that would be a big sea change. Absolutely. And their, their citizens would be like, oh, if the mayors feel safe riding their bike four months a year or whatever, I guess I can. It's all of this like messaging and communicating Absolutely. and that this is possible. We change the social norm. And my whole vision for my work is to make- that more relevant than the other. So the most relevant, the most hip mayors, the most whatever are the ones who are not driving as much and who are taking transit and are on their bikes. Those are the ones that we in the media that we all need to raise up and, and make more stories out of. So to, to our discussion of John Bowders from Emeryville, he's really good on social media and understands how to get around the country. He like goes around the country and makes sure that he's seen that he should be making other mayors jealous. Exactly. Be because he's a small mayor, right? He's doing that. Imagine if the Kansas City mayor started to do that. Yeah, that's my point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not, not not to criticize Emeryville, but uh, it's just Emeryville. It's uh, I think it's not even 10,000 people. So we need bigger cities doing what oh. they're doing. And that's the point. It's like if the it's the smaller mayors who are like being brave to do it. And it's just like you, too, could have that mayor of Kansas City if you and and that's what I yeah. there's huge potential there. And I think if we look at climate change right now, that's those are the kinds of cities I want to help 
change that and get their leaders out there more visible, leading change, walking the talk, peddling the talk. Well, we fully support you and whatever I can do to help you uh, on that uh, charge, just you let Thank me know. <laughs> uh, but finally, back to the point of Paris. So let's talk about uh, Europe real fast. So um, Paris is a leader in climate change and they're a leader in uh, cycle-friendly transport and the leadership of Anne Hidalgo. But there's another story that I must share, Andrea, in terms of what's happening in Europe. The unsung uh, cities in Europe that are not getting enough media attention that have made a much bigger impact in terms of sustainable modal shift than Paris or Copenhagen or Amsterdam have. And those are cities like Milan, like Seville, Spain, like Lisbon, Portugal, like Berlin, Germany, like Budapest, Hungary. They're not getting enough media attention. They're the ones that have gone from very highly car-centric societies before COVID just four or five years ago, to cities that have complete cycle networks and a very large shift in modal split just in the last three or four years. So I'm not trying to, again, criticize what has happened in Paris, but I would like to see more media attention to these mid-sized European cities, especially in Southern Europe and in Central Europe that have made a much more impactful change in modal shift then we would expect this in Copenhagen. We would expect this in Amsterdam. And there's a lot of American urbanists who visit here in Europe and they come back to the US with envy and then they're very depressed thinking, okay, here's the US city. We get that. But what they should be doing is traveling to Milan, traveling to Berlin, traveling to Budapest, going to Seville and seeing that is where the action is in Europe right now. It's actually not in Paris. It's not in Copenhagen or Amsterdam. It's in these other cities that used to be very car centric. And what they've done with limited budgets in a short period of time is absolutely amazing. I would love as somebody, you know, who has a platform about this to give all of those cities much more publicity and also that's the cities first. <laughs> it's my right, point. <laughs> right. I mean, that's what you're doing. That's and that, and the point is, is that the the media that are covering climate, right, in the U.S. It's overly need, dominated with Paris, though, right now. That's well, the, but this is what I'm saying is they need to see this. So it's like your podcast, my podcast, elevating different cities so that there are different stories to be told. But to my point, the mayors and kind of the leaders of those cities need to do a better job like Anne Hidalgo's team. Right. Of making sure they're seen for that. Yeah. So uh, Paris is very great at marketing. So they've done a great job at self-promoting, but uh, not enough other European cities have self-promoted as well as Paris. So I think they need to step up their game. And it's and it's sort of I've had this conversation with other people. I talk about it in terms of building climate influence, but really what it is, and it may help mayors or people in these positions think about it differently, is to think about personal branding around your leadership. So personal branding, that term may resonate more with people. I've had this conversation with organizations in democracy and media spaces, and they're like, you know, some politicians on one side of the story are really good at personal branding and other politicians are sort of shying away from it. I think one of the things that we all need to do is realize it is it is something that we all need to do and that we can craft the story and kind of what we want to be seen for. And these Milans, Seville's, et cetera, huge opportunity for them to craft a personal brand around what this is. And that's right. You're, you've got a platform to celebrate that. I've got a platform to celebrate mm -hmm. that. I also want to make sure that more of those mayors are seen doing that from all around the world. And to your point, we need the stories of what's happening in these smaller cities in Europe to get bigger so that people don't go, well, it's only just Paris that could do that. Cause they're hey, that's all we hear now. We've been hearing right? for about a year or two now in the run up to the Olympics. 
It is all we hear. And it's and all you hear in the US. I, and because the, to your point, we have to equate it. It's like with the Kansas City mayor saw that X equivalent city in Europe was doing it, then they could connect the dots and maybe conceive of it. Yeah. So it, it, to wrap up, because we're running out of time here. But um, so American mayors and American uh, urban planners and leaders need to realize that it's not a copy paste of a Copenhagen in Amsterdam or a Paris in uh, Abilene, Texas, or in, let's say, you know, Las Cruces, New Mexico, or whatever like that. So they need to have a little bit of level of equivalency and a starting point. So you're not going from zero to 60. But with that, um, maybe you spend a few seconds just telling us where we can find you on social media, Andrea. Well, I'm around. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I I remain on what I'm calling now Twitter X, Twex. I yeah. remain on and it's my handle on all these platforms is Andrea Learned. So I'm also on a newer platform called Blue Sky, which a lot I'm seeing a lot of climate media on in case people are interested. It's called Blue Sky and you can find me. I'm Andrea Learned. I'm also very visible. I think it's just Andrea Learned on LinkedIn and I'm on Instagram. I don't really use it as much. I'm also I have a newsletter now on Substack. My Substack is called Climate Influence. If you look up Climate Influence Andrea Learned on Substack, you'll find me. Um, and I also am just sort of dabbling with a new audio platform called Swellcast. It's a Swell AI, and it's these little audio clips. I think there's something to that. So you will find me on that giving little audio clips. I'm also doing some audio clips on Substack. Great. So we... Whatever these platforms, everyone will be able to reach you. It sounds like this is perfect. Yes, they will. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. We really appreciate it. And thanks to our listeners for uh, joining us on our 15th episode. So uh, this uh, episode will be probably up in the next day or so. You can find us on uh, Spotify, RSS, Apple, Google, etc. And uh, yeah, so and then we have our uh, next special guest uh, next uh, month, uh, investor from Netherlands, uh, Thing Van uh, Velhort. And um, otherwise, uh, we look for a new season in uh, 2024. So thanks again, Andrea, for joining us. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure.